The Electronic Intifada. Intifada. Intifada Electronic. Intifada Electronic. This is the Electronic Intifada Podcast. In Oakland, I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Just past midnight on July 29, 2014, filmmaker and journalist Jihad Safdawi and his wife Lara recorded video of Israeli drones and airstrikes around their apartment building in the middle of Gaza City. In July and August 2014, Israel attacked the Gaza Strip for 51 days, killing more than 2,200 Palestinians, including 551 children. A year later, due to the eight years of continuous Israeli siege, reconstruction of the tens of thousands of homes Israel destroyed has been nearly impossible, while electricity is available only a few hours per day for most of Gaza's residents. Gaza's infant mortality rate has also risen for the first time in 50 years, according to a newly published survey. UNRWA, the United Nations Agency for Palestine Refugees, states in their study that, quote, the number of babies dying before the age of one has consistently gone down over the last decades in Gaza, from 127 per 1,000 live births in 1960 to 20.2 in 2008. But in 2013, it had risen to more than 22 per 1,000 live births. The number of babies in Gaza dying before they turn four weeks old soared by 70 percent, from 12 per 1,000 live births in 2008 to more than 20 in 2013. Dr. Akihiro Seta, director of UNRWA's health program, said in a statement, quote, Progress in combating infant mortality doesn't usually reverse. This seems to be the first time we have seen an increase like this. The agency points to Israel's blockade, now in its eighth year, as the likely reason for the increase. Bilal Zabur, a medical doctor in Gaza, told the Electronic Intifada that the infant mortality rate, quote, is affected by a multitude of factors and those in play before the birth of the infant, before the mother is even pregnant. The rise of the infant mortality rate, Debor said, is, quote, the effect of a decade of blockade, including the infamous calorie count, restrictions on movement, poverty, dependence on food aid, power crises, the sewage flooding the streets, and the wars bringing down homes and bringing instead unstable and unhealthy shelters. Today, we hear from reporters, bloggers, writers, and artists who have helped document the reality on the ground in Gaza. In their brand new book, Gaza Unsilenced, editors Leila El-Haddad and Rifat Alarir meticulously collected essential reporting, essays, analysis, tweets, blog posts, poetry, and art that was made during the war on Gaza and the year that has followed. 
As they write in the introduction, as Palestinians from Gaza who are watching the horror unfold from abroad, we were driven by a sense of urgency, despair, and obligation to curate and edit this book, to be a conduit for voices writing from and about Gaza as a means for changing the narrative and thereby changing public opinions, which we hope can help push the long-standing U.S. policy of alliance with Israel in a different direction and ultimately let Gaza live. I recently spoke to Rifat and Leila over Skype and asked Rifat to begin by describing what he sees outside his home in Gaza City, a year after the Israeli attacks which killed his brother Mohammed and 25 extended family members. Uh, maybe I can begin saying that uh, the rubble of our house is still there. Even t taking away the rubble uh, is something that is very difficult because there are so many houses that have been destroyed and, and, and because, again, the reconstruction process is not going as it should be, uh, we haven't been uh, able to remove the rubble like, again, thousands of, uh, of families. We've been through one of the toughest uh, years ever as uh, Palestinians. Uh, we lived the first intifada, uh, the curfews, the... Uh, the daily shootings in the first intifada and the horror of the second intifada. And we survived, uh, miraculously, some of us survived the uh, the war, three wars. Uh, but the year that followed, uh, to me and to my family members, to my friends, to so many people I know, has been the, the toughest because it's, uh, it's a slow death. When it's war, people can either just die or, uh, or live. But here we're, we're all being uh, suffocated, we're being uh, uh, killed slowly by uh, the siege imposed uh, uh, mainly by Israel and with the complicity of the international community. Leila, you grew up in Gaza but were abroad when the bombs started falling. Um, tell us about this book, Gaza Unsilenced, how it came together and how you both organized it. Sure. Actually, I was not raised in Gaza, but I did... Um, uh, commute and summer there throughout my childhood. was in the Gulf in Kuwait and Saudi Arabia and then would return on a yearly basis and, and you know, still retain my uh, Gaza residency card. Um, but in any case, so the idea for the book came about, really it was our publisher, Helena Coban, who approached us about this um, novel idea of wanting to uh, commemorate the... Um, the assault on Gaza, the latest assault on Gaza, we should say, and trying to really, um, uh, you know, compile a, li a list of some of the best voices and writings that were coming out. And so much, there was so much incredible uh, writing happening, both from within Gaza and on the outside. And I think, uh, really, this assault was unique in that sense that the first time we were hearing very loudly and clearly Palestinians from within Gaza writing you know, tweeting live from the hospital, from their houses, but also writing and speaking out on their Facebook and to the media. Um, whereas before, there was attempts uh, by Israel to establish a media blackout, and, and and before that, even further back to uh, cast lead, there was uh, almost no Palestinian voices um, speaking from the inside. So we wanted to be able to uh, include all of those voices in, in a way that could uh, speak about what was happening, um, you know, narrate, narrate that story, um, and by extension, the Palestinian story, um, in a way that hasn't been documented before. 
So we went through this process of trying to figure out, you know, sort of thematically including these pieces that had been published and put out a call for submission. And really important, um, what was really important to us was to be able to, to include um, Palestinian voices um, and Palestinian photographers as well to include their artwork. And, and you can see the um, famous picture uh, of um, Hamad Assad, the, the award-winning Palestinian photographer from Gaza, um, whose, uh, whose house was actually destroyed in Shaja'iyah during the assault. Um, that picture of uh, Dali Khalifa, the nine-year-old uh, um, girl that became very famous, and the name of that picture is Unbreakable. So that was really important uh, as well to highlight the work of the photographers and the poets and, and so forth. Um, it, it was a very uh, tough process. Like uh, Layla said, it, it, it's unique because uh, there were so many people writing, so many people tweeting, so many people updating uh, the world and exposing Israeli barbarity. Uh, online and we had to call for submissions and we received like hundreds of pieces and it was a very very again tough uh, process of going through all these pieces and trying to uh, choose what uh, could represent and uh, reflect uh, a comprehensive picture of what was going on before the war and during and uh, and, and after that uh, if you go through the book uh, the table of contents, we we kind of uh, categorized it into uh, chapters in order to uh, put some kind of organization. It was difficult, but we had uh, to choose uh, one particular system. So there's a chapter about how Israel targets, deliberately targets the human, uh, uh, human beings individually and in families and in groups, and, and then how Israel, uh, uh, in a, in a second, second chapter, how Israel targets uh, 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 all aspects of life, universities and schools and infrastructure and mosques and churches and and everything that makes life livable in, in the Gaza Strip. And then we go to a ch- an, a chapter three of uh, uh, Palest- Palestinian voices from outside the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, the diaspora, and then how the world reacted to uh, the, the aggression and then there's a, chap- a, a creative writing and social media uh, uh, chapter where we managed to uh, bring again uh, the best of tweets and uh, photographs and and, and 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 designs that were uh, uh, became very famous uh, uh, during uh, the war. That doesn't mean uh, we managed to uh, to include all the good things. Sometimes we had to sacrifice, and and there are other wonderful pieces that we couldn't get permission for or pieces that uh, made it to other books like uh, 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 Muhammad Omar's uh, wonderful book, Shell Shocked, and Max Blumenthal, uh, Max Blumenthal's book, uh, 51 Days of the War on, uh, on Gaza. So this is one book that came out uh, uh, to, again, express uh, uh, or, or, or to sh- uh, showcase the the, the Palestinian voices mainly, like Leila just said, and to show the voices that were speaking for uh, Palestine to, to present a comprehensive image of uh, the uh, situation then. I was just going to add that it was really important to us that um, we included Palestinian voices as well, like from 48 Palestine, from the Galilee. This isn't just about Gaza and Gaza being its own kind of you know entities, you know, increasingly... Um, that is becoming a reality or playing into kind of the Israeli um, narrative or policy of trying to fragment the Palestinians 
so, so that's, I think, something different that we try to do is include those voices and put things in perspective and to be able to say, look, what was happening on the ground elsewhere in Palestine before this assault that can help you understand the context, um, how were Palestinians reacting, you know, um, um, on the outside as well as on the inside to this incident to remind people that Gaza is part of, of greater Palestine. We're speaking with Leila Haddad and Rifat Alarir. They're the co-editors of Gaza Unsilenced. Um, Leila, which section in the book uh, stood out for you the most or, or best encompasses or communicates the struggle of Palestinians in Gaza? Is it, is it possible to, you know, to, to think of, of one particular section um, that, that, that really speaks to you? Yeah, that's a really difficult question. And, and like Rifat said, compiling the book itself was really um, an arduous process. And I can't say, I mean, there's, you know, for me, I generally tend to shun figures and statistics and pieces that don't give you a sense of the human element. So still, figures and statistics do help paint part of the picture. Um, but we wanted to balance those out with uh, stories and pieces that could help convey uh the, the, the human um, element. And so that's why we included a chapter, for example, on, you know, obviously the human toll, but then even beyond that, um, creative responses and, um, you know, what we call digital resistance and, and so forth. Um, so it's hard to say. I really like that chapter, the, the pen, the keyboard, and the F-16, just because, and, and again, we wish we had so many pieces, we ended up not getting permission. So, it, you know, I feel like it could have been... Um, a bit more thorough, but um, but still, we I mean that's what to me what speaks the most is um, is those really unique um, personal essays and responses, and even some of the poetry is just really uh, captivating. I think the uh, chapter one, Human Toll, was uh, it, uh, it took a lot of time to compile that chapter because uh, we had like. 60 pieces and we have to go through them all to read them in order to again uh, give uh, uh, a unique picture, a comprehensive picture of uh, the situation and that meant having to read, uh, go through, to live and relive the, uh, the war moment by moment and to read stories of individuals and, and families, people with, uh, with talents. It's uh, this chapter uh, where I included my own uh, article that I uh, published with the Electronic Intifada uh, my, uh, on my brother uh, uh, Muhammad. Uh, uh, and it, that's why it stands as a unique chapter. Uh, it stands as, uh, as different because uh, it has this uh, uh, human element in it. It has the human voices, the voices of the dead the voices of the freedom fighters, the voices of the journalists, the voices of the, the medics, the voices of all those uh, families and the, the, the people who uh, were ruthlessly killed by, uh, by Israel. Um, and, and Leila, you mentioned that the chapter, the pen, the keyboard, and the F-16, creative resistance in the digital age. And, and in that chapter, um, you both say that Palestinians' voices were louder and more present and more expressive than ever before. Um, talk a little bit more about the importance of that and what impact you hope that this book has one year, 10 years, 100 years uh, after, after the war. You know, it's hard to say, and it's also difficult to gauge exactly what effect, if any, uh, this digital presence had or this digital resistance um, 
because, you know, for every tweet Palestinians or supporters of Palestinians were sending, there was, you know, an equal amount, if not more, being sent by, you know, trolls uh, and so Israeli trolls and so forth and those um, sympathetic to the Israeli side. But, but for sure, it established a presence, I think, and on social media and, um, and a voice. And, you know, that's the title of the book, Gaza Unsilenced. Um, and, and that's really important for me, kind of um, uh, owning our narrative and story and, and narrating our, our own experience. Um, and so I think that would be the impact I would hope it would have, is, is having contributed to the Palestinian narrative and to people's understanding of that narrative and of the Palestinian struggle and what's happened, you know, not only during the immediate assault, but, but the aftermath and the kind of the larger picture, the larger Palestinian story and struggle. The, the Palestinian voices on, on Twitter and Facebook and elsewhere were really loud and very, very strong because they were genuine, the voices of the uh, victims, the voices of the people who all at the same time refused to be... Uh, uh, to be uh, branded as as terrorists, as uh, as savages, as backwards, uh, Palestinians uh, refused also to surrender to Israeli uh, unprecedented uh, bombing of the Gaza Strip of, of every uh, uh, corner of the Gaza Strip. Uh, that's why people took to social media to raise their voices, to refuse death, to refuse uh, to surrender. Uh, Israel's uh, inability to, uh, uh, to 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 stop Palestinian resistance and the, the, the freedom fighters uh, made it, you know, unleash its its utmost barbarity against civilians, against houses, against uh, the, the the mowing the lawn uh, policy of Israel to kill as many people as possible, to destroy as many houses as possible in order to to silence Palestinians and to silence them. Uh, forever failed, and that was clear in, uh, in 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 the way so many Palestinians, mainly from the Gaza Strip, took to social media and uh, uh, and, and and exposed the the crimes and stood with the resistance and stood uh, united uh, together against the occupation and the invasion of the Gaza Strip. Uh, this is a very important book. It's uh, it's a book that uh, should. Uh, convince more and more people and show more and more people uh, the extent to which Israel can go if we don't hold the war criminals uh, accountable for the crimes they committed, uh, if we don't uh, uh, put pressure on our politicians, on uh, the UN, on all, uh, uh, you know, official uh, uh, global bodies to, to stop Israeli occupation, to, to stop Israeli uh, aggression and crimes against uh, Palestinians. So, uh, 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 a book like Gaza Unsilenced, uh, being distributed and sold all over the world and being read by as many people as as possible, uh, means that uh, as Palestinians, we will be able we will be able to uh, to win more and more uh, people to fight for uh, for freedom and justice uh, uh, for Palestinians. I think it's a very important book. It's a very very important uh, testimony for. Uh, for for future generations, because even now I just was scrolling down uh, the IDF uh, uh, account, uh, uh, a Twitter handle, and it's it's amazing how uh, they're spreading lies and misinformation and, and fabrications about the war that 
uh, is, is in, in my opinion, is still going on. So a book like this uh, 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 reminds everybody of of the uh, of the uh, minute-to-minute, uh, day-to-day uh, crimes against uh, Palestinians, and does not allow Israel, uh, doesn't give Israel the space to spread their lies. Well, we're going to leave it right there. That's the voice of Rifat Alarir and Leila Al-Haddad. They're the editors of the brand new book, Gaza Unsilenced, published by Just World Books. Thank you both for all of your work and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Thank you, Nora. Thank you. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. Visit us online at electronicintifada.net or follow us on Twitter at Intifada. The Electronic Intifada. Intifada Electronica. Electronic Intifada. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman. We continue our podcast special on Gaza, one year after the 51 days of Israeli attacks. I sat down with the Electronic Intifada's contributor, Charlotte Silver, at her home in Oakland and asked her to talk about her recent time in Gaza and the West Bank. Silver began by talking about what she covered while in Gaza, a year after the attacks. Yes, it was the first time in three years going back to Palestine and the first time ever going to Gaza. And so um, I had sort of a list of stories I knew I wanted to pursue um, going in, and actually, once I got there, it was—I saw a very different place than I could have ever imagined. Um, and it really, you know, it made the sort of the word blockade, siege—these words that we use to describe the state of and condition of Gaza—kind of have meaning. That you know, I was in this place that was, you know, if I went up to the eleventh floor of a building, I would be able to see the green trees of Israel, but. Other than that, you feel like you're, you could be in another country, you could be on the other side of the world. You feel so far away from both Israel and also um, the West Bank, even though every, um, every movement of Palestinians in Gaza are controlled by, by the occupation and the siege. Um, and um, one of the most profound experiences I had again and again and again was talking to people about they would, you know, it, you couldn't have a conversation for longer than 10 minutes without someone talking about how they wanted to get out and talking about their options of how to get out. And even with those options, how the, the small likelihood of that succeeding. And, um, you know, you feel in people's energy sitting at a table, walking around, the restlessness and the, the confinement that they're in. I mean, Gaza is a tiny place it take you don't you can't go anywhere and it takes longer than 20 minutes um, and there are there's an entire population made up of mostly young people who can't look into their future without seeing these small parameters these small borders these they have obviously they hope they have ways of trying to hope to get out and the heartbreaking thing about a lot of these plans is that it involves separating from their families and not knowing when they will be able to come back. Um, and, you know, so that's just, that's that's the constant, and that's been this way for eight years, um, it, you know, acutely. Um, I went almost exactly a year after last summer's war, and um, I was there for the month of Ramadan, and there was, um, at that point, not a single home had been 
reconstructed because of um, the inability to get reconstruction material in. And I think it's worth pointing out that, you know, the reconstruction material and all other sorts of materials haven't been able to get into Gaza since long before the war. And I spoke to people who had their houses destroyed in 2003 during the Second Intifada. They haven't had their homes restored, and they're also living on international aid because of this. Um, So the destruction to Gaza is something that predated last summer's war and it continues to go to go forward it's not just the 12,000 homes that were completely destroyed it's much more it's much it's much broader deeper it's much more it's not it's not just those those that travesty that happened last summer and I think that's important to point out um but it's so overt to to see blocks of not only destroyed homes, but the rubble. It's, um, and that's mostly still there. There are places where they've, they've managed to get rid of the rubble. Um, and, um, and some homes that were partially destroyed have been able to get some materials to, um, to repair. And I think there was, I think last week, the, the foundation for the first home to be rebuilt was laid in Shajaiya. Um, but no matter what has begun, the rate at which materials are allowed to go in is so slow that it estimate, people estimate that it will take up to 20 years for just what was destroyed to get rebuilt. Not counting you know, the destruction that was laid in previous assaults and also the, the destroyed infrastructure because of the siege. Right, and what will be needed to accommodate the growing population. For a photo story that I did with Ez Alzanun um, about families and people a year after the war, we d- we sort of we did it. We, we we found these people on the first few days of Ramadan, and we wanted to talk to them about um, what the this month was going to mean to them, um, considering what how how they endured it last year. And um, we met one man. We went to Beit Hanun, which was in the, it's in the north of Gaza, and it was heavily it's right on the border, and it was. He- um, blocks and blocks of just completely destroyed homes and we went about d- doing the story by just sort of walking around and ma- striking up conversations with people um, there were people who were outright hostile to talking to media they felt this sort of resentment of people coming in scooping up a story and leaving um, and but there are also, um, the large majority of people are very generous with their time and telling their stories. And these are stories that are not easy to talk about. And um, so in Beit Hanun, we, we, we came across a man named Ali Zaki Wahadan. And his story was um, one of the hardest to actually to hear and to ask him to tell because he was sitting, he's and now is in a wheelchair, he's lost one leg and his other leg um, may not, he may not be able to keep his other, other leg. And he lost 12 members of his family in two separate bombings. And he allowed us to sit down and talk to him, talk to him about what happened last year. And he didn't want to talk, he didn't want to talk about his wife that was killed, his mom that was killed. Um, what actually happened to his family was, was he, he left the home in Beit Hanun 
to take his brother to uh, a hospital. And meanwhile, Israeli soldiers descended on his home, arrested all the men, except um, one older man, arrested all the men, took them out of Beit Hanun, and proceeded to occupy the house and use it as a military base for over a week. And as this was going on, um, Ali's sister was text sending him text messages that she had hidden in her pocket. They had, the soldiers had put them all into one room, kept them there. You know, we're giving them food. They didn't report being tortured. They were, but they were kept prisoner and hostage in one room of this house as they sort of used the house as their military base. The sister was sending text messages for this week to Ali. Then the soldiers left, ordered the family, which included Ali's mother, father, um, two-year-old niece, to not leave the house. And within 24 hours, the house had been completely destroyed and demolished, and everyone in the house was killed. Ali found this out when he returned and found the home demolished. Um, He, you know, and there's no moment to mourn. It's just... That, that he, f- he was able to return to Beit Hanun during a very brief ceasefire. He immediately, um, he immediately went to a, f- a relative's house in Jabalia to seek refuge, and um, a two days later, that home was also struck, and he lost more members of his family, including his 22-year-old wife. Um, and you, you just, you know, you look at these people who have suffered un- unimaginable loss. Um, the entire structure of his family was obliterated. His home was obliterated. Um, and there's very little comfort that you that you can think that they can hold on to because it's not it's not necessarily the last time it's going to happen and there's not there's no end to the kind of prolonged um, suffering that really is inflicted on Gaza. We're speaking with Charlotte Silver uh, at her home in Oakland, California. Charlotte, um, what struck you the most, maybe what was most surprising about this latest trip to Palestine and the reporting that you did uh, over the, the, the couple months that you were there? Um, and and what, maybe what images, what, what stories do you keep kind of coming back to and, and thinking about the most? I think that being able to go to Gaza for the first time was um, just incredibly important, and I think that um, there's this tendency in the press, you know, from press from mainstream press to more or less stream press, left wing press, to emphasize the sort of constant crisis that Gaza is in, um, using kind of blanket terminologies like. Gaza is um, a ghetto, Gaza is destroyed, Gaza is rebel. Um, and that really does belie the culture and the life that, and the vibrancy of, of Gaza that exists. And it sort of, it turns, it turns what is a crisis, like a war, into a sort of trivialized, you know, just another ding on the drone of Gaza's destruction. And um, I think it's. An, I do think it's important. And it's not just you know a sunshine story to talk about what is in Gaza. Um, honestly, um, you know there was a lot of reporting, spe- especially around the year anniversary, talking about how the war could have been yesterday or the war could have been last week, and that's not true. I mean, you wouldn't the you know the, the hundreds and thousands of little children who were absolutely traumatized, speechless from their from trauma from the war. They have recovered. 
um, in a lot of ways. They are speaking now and they are laughing and people are talking about the incredible um, healing that has gone on for a year. Um, and that's not, to, not, not to say that there is not still trauma being held by everyone, but there's no reason not to um, acknowledge what has what Palestinians in Gaza have managed to achieve this past year. Charlotte Silver, you're a contributor uh, to the Electronic Intifada and also to The Nation and uh, with Al Jazeera as well. Charlotte, thank you so much for all that you do and for being with us on the Electronic Intifada podcast. Welcome back. Thank you so much. You're listening to the Electronic Intifada podcast. San Francisco Bay Area-based artist Naima Shalhoub told the Electronic Intifada back in January that, quote, in August 2014, when the attacks on Gaza were happening at the same time as the Ferguson protests and the wider call to draw attention to police brutality against black and brown people, the grief was overwhelming. As an artist, I couldn't help but write a song attempting to draw the connections between the two. Shalhoub added, quote, both peoples experience oppression stemming from the global prison industrial complex. It is no coincidence that Gaza is the largest open-air prison, while the United States has rampant incarceration rates and death rates of black and brown people. Commemorating a year after the Israeli attack on Gaza and the uprising that began after the police killing of Mike Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, we now listen to Naima Shalhoub's Ferguson, Gaza Blues. Sixteenth Street Church and Medgar Evers memory and Gaza turned gray from the ashes of apartheid. They don't care they're killing children cause they on the devil's side. While they fund the massacre of those that resist to survive They hold the hand of murderers and feed him more weapons As children die before them, as they shout the last wishes They say that this land is the leader of the free But black is still segregated Things don't seem to change 
gotta keep our fists raised Cause it's time to real range Oh, when our things turn in Cause things don't seem to change Gotta keep our fists raised Cause it's time to real raised fist but if he was still alive he'd be on the terrorist watch list your words have no meaning when defense is genocide guys but the day is coming near when this mask will be your demise when Things don't seem to change Gotta keep our office raised Cause it's time to rearrange Oh, when are all things turning? Cause they don't seem to change From Underneath the rubble, a child still survives, and so is the truth that slowly starts to rise. Thank you for receiving that. That was Naima Shalhoub singing Ferguson Gaza Blues. And that's it for the Electronic Intifada podcast. For news, information, cultural features and reviews, and pointed opinion and analysis, visit us online at electronicintifada.net, where you can also post comments and sign up for our daily email digest. Follow us on Twitter at Intifada. Radio stations are free to use this podcast, and if you're listening on iTunes, support the Electronic Intifada podcast by rating it and leaving a review. On behalf of all of us at the Electronic Intifada, thank you for listening. <laughs>